to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you have never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. If you aren't following us on social media, make sure to head to Facebook and Instagram and search for My Collective Church to learn more about what is going on at Collective as we start this new year. Thank you again for listening. Now let's get into Sunday's message. Has life ever thrown you a curveball? Of course it has at certain point in times in your life. This has happened to you. Happened to me this morning about 9 a.m. I was sitting at home in my pajamas holding our one-month-old baby girl trying to bond with her. When I got a phone call, hey, we have a situation. Can you get here right now? And I said, yes, I sure can. And so what happened was Pastor Michael, as he was working and preparing for our sermon today, started to feel sick and was actually dry heaving. So he went home and I am here in his place. So I have Pastor Michael's sermon. I have seen it one time and we together, for the first time, all of us are going to work through this sermon. So that means a couple of things. Number one, if you could just be praying for Pastor Michael and his family as they work through whatever this illness is for him. And number two, let's have some fun. So in 2018, Pastor Michael said that he watched a TED Talk from a guy named Mark Robert. And maybe that name sounds familiar to you, especially if you spend a lot of time on YouTube, because he's the glitter bomb guy. He's formerly of NASA and an Apple engineer, now turned YouTuber with over 21 million subscribers, and he puts out videos out there. He's created the world's largest Nerf gun. He's designed a maze for squirrels in his backyard. He's using science to win at carnival games, but this is the video that you have probably seen. It started a few years ago when he had a package stolen off of his front porch. Maybe this has happened to you, and after talking to the police not getting very much help from them, he decided to take action. So he got revenge by building a device that, when opened, would shoot glitter everywhere, spray fart spray, and set off a fake police siren, all while recording this for our and his 21 million followers' enjoyment. But before his viral fame for the glitter bomb, he started with a TED Talk. With the help of a friend, he designed a computer programming puzzle and asked his followers to give it a shot. It looks like this. And the goal was to get the car through the maze by arranging the code blocks on the right that represented typical computer programming operations. And once the player was satisfied with the code that they had created, they would hit run and the car moves through the sequence that they had created. Pretty simple. And when he posted about this on social media, he said this was an experiment because he wanted to prove that anybody can code. But he was actually lying. You see, the truth was he had no intention of proving that anybody could code. This was actually an experiment about failure. What his followers didn't know was that there were two different links that he sent out. 
And while both links had the exact same puzzle, they had different messages that would pop up if you failed to solve the puzzle. In version one, you stack the blocks, you hit run, you don't succeed, and so you don't lose any points. You get a message that says, that didn't work, please try again. In the second version, you stack the blocks, you hit go, and if you fail, you get a message that said, that didn't work, you lost five points, try again. And then the completely arbitrary point total would take off five points from your total score, Everything else was the exact same. The car, the maze, the blocks. 50,000 people attempted this puzzle, and Robert learned a very small difference, but a very big difference at the same time, about the two messages, and they unveiled something very significant about the human psyche when it comes to failure. Through his study, Robert found out that 68% of the people who didn't lose any points would learn from their previous mistakes, and eventually, they would figure out the puzzle. However, only 52% of the people who were told they lost points would go on to solve the puzzle. He also found out that people who didn't lose any points repeated the puzzle on average 12 times before they succeeded, and people who lost points did the same only five times. So to sum it up, the group that kept trying after their failure saw a higher success rate than the ones that gave up after fewer attempts. And maybe you're sitting here thinking like, no duh, bro, that's not hard to figure out. The people who didn't give up had more success. That makes sense. You don't have to work at NASA or Apple to figure that out. And you're right. But here's what he really learned. In the game, both groups failed. But people who were afraid to fail again quit the game sooner than those who didn't. It was all about how people viewed their failure that determined their future success. And today we're closing out a series called Chasing Failure. It's by, uh, inspired by a book with the same name from a guy named Ryan Leak. And if you haven't been with us the past few Sundays, this series is all about setting big goals, scary goals, and taking big steps this next year in 2022. It's about taking risks and watching God move and not letting fear get in the way of our growth. And last week, Pastor Michael told us one of the ways that we overcome our fear of failure is to focus on the things that we have control over. And so last week, we talked about that we have control over whether or not we go at life alone. We have control over that. Here's the second thing that we have control over. We control how we respond to failure. We control how we respond to failure. Now, I want you to notice this is not about preventing failure. In fact, none of the application of this series has been about playing it safe, avoiding risks, or just white-knuckling it through life. Because if we are chasing growth, eventually we will experience failure as well. There's going to be times when we fall short, we miss our own goals, we let our pride or our ego get in the way, or even our fear of failure leads to failure anyways. But how we respond to that failure will determine whether we get back up and keep going or if we just remain stuck. 
And when we think about this idea of failure, there's a whole host of emotions that come along with this. But the one that does the most damage is shame. Psychologists have spent a lot of time studying shame, and they have found that people who have a fear of failure are motivated to avoid failing, not because they can't manage the basic emotions of anger or frustration or disappointment, but because failing also makes us feel deep shame. Shame is psychologically toxic as an emotion because instead of feeling bad about a situation or bad about an experience, we ourselves feel bad about who we are. Shame becomes the core of our ego, our identity, our self-esteem, or our emotional well-being. Brene Brown is a researcher and author, and she probably leads the way in a lot of this discussion and the conversation on shame, and she defines shame as an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed because of something we've experienced, done, or failed. And therefore, we feel we are unworthy of love or belonging. She also teaches that shame has two main loops that kind of play in a track on our head over and over again. Our first loop is that we are never good enough. You are never good enough. Shame constantly repeats this over and over again. You're not a good enough spouse. You're not a good enough friend. You're not a good enough employee. And you're not a good enough follower of Jesus. And the second loop that kind of plays on that track is, who do you think you are? This is a track that plays when we try to break free from the weight of some of our shame in our life, and and we're kind of working to be a better marriage or or step up as a husband, or we're working to spend more time with our kids, and, and we want to seek out help, and we want to embrace vulnerability. This is when shame steps in and says, who do you think that you are? And it keeps us in that loop. And it feels right to me. I am a big runner. This is not in Pastor Michael's notes. Do not go talk to Pastor Michael about running. That conversation will go over just as good as the Ravens making the playoffs. It won't happen. I'm going off script here. I am a big runner. I love running, but I ran a race, 10,000 people in the race. It was hot. I got dehydrated. I got lost. I finished second to last. And this thing that I love because of one experience caused shame to enter into my relationship with running. And so we focus on painful experiences, but shame can come from both the good and the bad in our life. And Pastor Michael tells this story. They have a daughter named Elise, and Elise is in kindergarten, and just this past week, she learned how to make paper snowflakes. Take that paper, fold it up, cut it up in a certain way, and out comes that beautiful paper snowflake. And she was excited because she wanted to teach uh, her parents at home as well, and she just loves snow in general. So she heard that if you turn your pajamas inside out and you sleep with a spoon under your pillow, 
it snows while you're sleeping. And the next day you'll get a snow day. You don't have to go to school. You can play and it'll be great. And so she grabbed the night it was supposed to snow. She grabbed the biggest spoon she could find, shoved that thing under her pillow, and she woke up the next morning and snow was on the ground. And so this little kindergartner, Elise, walks up to her mom and dad with really big eyes. And she's like, I did it. I made it snow. And she was so excited until the snow started to melt. And so her response was, I'm going to make a bunch of paper snowflakes and throw that paper into the air to keep the snow going. And so after dinner one night at the Bartlett household, she grabbed a stack of construction paper and started to work on making paper snow. She kept folding the edges and cutting, but then when she'd open it up for the big reveal, it would all just kind of fall apart. And at first, you could tell that she was confused because she couldn't quite get right what she had just learned in school. So Pastor Michael and his wife, Ray, tried to coach her up on this and try to give her a little bit of basic instructions. But as she kept trying and failing, her confusion changed to frustration, which changed to sadness. And finally, she'd had enough, and after one last failed attempt, she put down her scissors, and she slammed down her paper, and she was crying, and she said to her parents, I will never do it right. I am so dumb. She's six, and this is shame. By no means is Elise's identity tied to how well she can make paper snowflakes, but shame tried to tell her it was. And if that's what shame says to a six-year-old girl trying to make paper snowflakes, imagine what shame says to us in our lives and our failures over the years, especially with big things in life that matter. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to jump in and out of reading from different places in the Bible about one of the Bible characters. His name is Peter. We started this series with Peter. We're going to come back and focus on Peter again this morning. He's a guy, he just failed a lot, if we're honest. So here's some context for what we're about ready to read. Jesus is arrested, he's put on trial, and he's crucified on a cross. And in just the last few hours before all of that happens... Jesus sits down and he shares a meal with his 12 best friends. We call them his disciples. And at one point during the night, uh, Jesus shares a prophecy from the book of Zechariah that says, Jesus will be struck down and the flock, the disciples, will all scatter. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, this is going to go down and it's going to get real. And when this happens, all of you guys in this room right now, you're going to bail on me. And this is where we pick up the story in Matthew 26. Verse 33, Peter declares, hey, even if everybody else deserts you, I am never going to desert you. Peter gets defensive. And if you think about it, this makes sense. Peter is one of Jesus' closest friends. He's a little bit closer to Jesus than some of the other disciples. And he's like, hey, don't throw me under the bus with these guys. You can say that about them, but don't say that about me, Jesus. I'm not going to bail on you. The very next verse, Matthew 26, 34, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. 
before the sun rises, this is going to happen, Peter. He's specifically addressing Peter. And Peter's response, no, I insist, even if I have to die with you, I am never going to deny you. And all the other disciples vowed to do the same. This isn't going to happen, Jesus. I would rather die with you and die for you than deny my friendship with you. And if you don't know the story this morning, maybe you can play, uh, you can kind of guess how all of this plays out. A few hours later, Jesus gets arrested, he's put on trial, and what do his disciples do? They peace out. So as Jesus is taken before the high priest and put on trial, Peter follows from a safe distance. Peter and all the rest of the disciples are afraid that what is happening to Jesus might happen to them as well. But this is Jesus, and so Peter wants to know what's happening. So from a safe distance, he kind of observes what's going on. And that is when we see what happens next with our story, Matthew 26, verses 69 and 70. Meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came over and said to him, You were one of those with Jesus the Galilean. And Peter denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. There's one. In the very next verses, 71 and 72, later, out by the gate, a slightly different physical location, another servant girl notices him and says to those standing around, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath, I don't even know the man, he said. It's two. Picking right up in the next verses, A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and they said, you must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. And Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. There's three. And this last one was actually the worst of all because when Peter was saying, a curse on me if I'm lying, what he was really saying was, God can condemn me to hell if I'm lying. So it's not just denial, it's disowning his friend and his faith. Pick the story up, verse 74, immediately the rooster crowed. Suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And he went away weeping bitterly. I think it's pretty safe to say this is probably the greatest failure in Peter's life. He failed as a friend. He failed as a disciple. He failed to keep his word. He failed to have courage. He failed in his faith. All of it, he just failed. And so you can imagine potentially some of the things that are running through his mind in that moment and the shame that begins to enter in. I am so weak. I am not a good friend. I am a terrible follower. I am a failure. Maybe you've been in that place before. For me, I said it was running. Maybe for you, it's something different. A promise that you didn't keep. A vow that you broke. You tried your best, but you still fell short. You failed, and that's when shame pounced and the negative self-talk begins. 
It tells you that you can never change. It tells you that it doesn't matter if you keep on trying, you're just going to keep on failing. It reminds you that every other time when you tried, you have failed in the past. This is what happens when we respond to our failure through shame. And this is what is happening to Peter as well. And so the story continues with Peter and Jesus. Jesus is put on trial. He is beaten and humiliated. He is nailed to a cross and eventually put to death. And then he gets placed in an empty tomb. And on the third day, Jesus raises from the dead, proving that he is the Son of God and that he is the one who was sent to rescue us from our sins and our shame. And Peter saw that empty tomb. He even saw the resurrected Jesus after he came back to life, but he was still stuck in his shame. Shame was telling him that he wasn't good enough. And we know this because of what Peter went to next. He went to his old life. He went back to fishing. This was his old identity. This was pre-Jesus Peter, and this is what he went back to. He knew he had failed. He knew that Jesus had resurrected from the dead, but he also was stuck in his shame, and he believes that there is no way that Jesus would want anything to do with him. So he goes back to what he knows. He's allowing failure to negate the entire last three years of his life, but this isn't how a relationship with Jesus works. We pick up the story here in John chapter 21, verses 4 and 5. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. And he called out, hey, fellas, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. It's really easy to read the story and be like, wow, you guys are really great at your job. You can't catch anything all night. This is why this part of the story matters. Jesus seeks them out specifically. Every single one of those guys had abandoned Jesus in one of his biggest moments of need, and Jesus comes to seek them out. There's a boat full of shame. Every single person in that boat had failed and bailed on Jesus, but he calls out to them, and we pick up the story in verse 6. Then Jesus, he says, throw your net out on the right side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. What's really ironic is, do you know what Peter was doing when Jesus called him originally three years earlier? He was fishing. In fact, he was fishing and not catching anything. And it was Jesus who told him in that initial moment to cast your nets out and see what happens. So don't miss this. Peter is in essentially the exact same position as when he met Jesus for the first time. He's at the starting line. And Jesus calls to him. Peter and the other disciples, they realize who the man on the shore is. They're like, it's Jesus. And they immediately try to bring their boats in the shore. But Peter is so excited, he doesn't even wait for the boat to get the shore. He actually jumps out and swims up to the beach. And when they get there, they eat breakfast. John 21, 13 tells us that Jesus served them bread and fish. Now again, let's not miss what's happening here through this meal. Jesus told them after they shared a meal together that they were all going to deny him. And here they are having breakfast together at dawn. 
I promise you the symbolism isn't lost on Peter because he's still living in his shame and in his failure, and Jesus sees that, and so Jesus responds accordingly. Verse 15 tells us, After breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know that I love you, then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. And that's one. Verse 16, Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. And take care of my sheep, Jesus said. And that's two. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Three times Peter portrays Jesus, and three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And listen, let's just be real. If anybody has the right to give Peter the label of failure, it's Jesus. If anybody has the right to make Peter start over from the beginning or just to cancel Peter out entirely, it's Jesus. But that's not what he does. Jesus acknowledges that Peter messed up, which is why he asked him the three times, do you love me? But instead of beating him to the ground or letting failure define him, Instead of telling him that his mistakes are too big to overcome, there's no place for you here and you need to move on, Jesus shows Peter forgiveness and mercy and, most importantly, grace. Grace is the reminder that when you fail, God's love for you doesn't change. Grace is the reminder that when you feel God's love for you doesn't change. And that is what Jesus is showing Peter in these moments. He's saying, I don't love you any less because of what you've done. I don't love you less because you failed, because you screwed up. Grace is the reminder that when we fail, we are allowed to get back up and keep moving. You don't have to start over at the beginning. Grace is the reminder that God gives us a second chance and another and another, and another second chance. So Jesus is telling him very clearly, I know that you failed. I saw it. I felt it. But do you still love me? He doesn't ask Peter why he failed. He doesn't ask Peter, hey, did you learn your lesson? Jesus says, are you ready to move forward? Feed my sheep. Love my people care for my church. Now, of course, Peter will fail again. We know this because Peter is a person just like we are people. It happens to all of us. But when that happens, Jesus doesn't want Peter's identity to be wrapped up in shame and failure. He wants his identity to be wrapped up in grace, endless second chances, the love that he has for his Savior. It was grace that picked Peter up and dusted him off. It was grace that allowed him to keep going. And this is what Peter needed. This is what I need. It's what we all need. And grace is not an excuse to screw up on purpose. Well, I can go home today and I can yell at my wife who's sitting right here because I got grace. It doesn't mean that it's okay to make decisions in your marriage and fail that you know are wrong. Grace doesn't mean it's okay to disobey God and fail in your faith. Grace doesn't mean it's okay to hurt other people 
because of your relationships. Grace means that when you fall short, which we all will, God will pick you back up so you can keep going. And if we think about it, grace doesn't make any sense. Nothing about this story with Peter really makes sense. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. If you were Jesus, what, you would, what would you do? Pastor Michael says, and I echo, I can promise you I am not wasting my time making breakfast for a person who just disowned me and abandoned me. I'm not going to chase them down and restore them to myself. But the good news is that grace is not contingent on what we do. Grace is contingent on who God is. And when we fail, God will show us grace. So when it comes to how we respond to failure, we have a choice. We can respond in shame or we can respond in grace. We can allow our failure to become our identity or we can live out who we are in our identity in Jesus. Shame is about who I am. Grace is about who God is. Shame says I am a bad parent. Grace says I am capable. Shame says I am a horrible person. Grace says I can change. Shame says I am never going to be the person that God wants me to be. Grace says God will walk with me as I become who he knows I can be. Shame keeps you stuck and grace moves you forward. There's a pastor, his name is Craig Rochelle, and he says that shame follows a pattern. It's a cycle of self-recrimination, and it lies to us after event and event throughout our life. So first, we experience something intensely painful, some type of event that causes us pain. And second, we believe the lie that our pain and our failure is just who we are, not just something we've done or something that happened to us. And because of that, we experience shame. And finally, our feelings of shame trap us into thinking that we can never recover. And in fact, there's no point of even trying to recover because we don't deserve to. Grace breaks us from those cycles. Grace frees us from those lies. Grace comes from God, and it doesn't come from the world. And author Philip Yancey says it like this, the world that we know runs on ungrace. It plays like the background static of our life and our families generation after generation. It is sadly part of our natural human state, and it's toxic that steals part of our lives. And the reason we struggle with failure is because we live in a world full of ungrace. If grace is getting something better than we deserve, ungrace is getting something worse than we deserve. And ungrace manifests itself through shame. So in order to change how we view our failure, we need to allow God's grace to permeate our lives so that we can get what Jesus gives us and what Jesus showed Peter that he wants to give to all of us. Romans 5 verses 6, six through 8 talk about this a little bit more. They say, when we were utterly helpless... Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. 
while we were failing at life, at relationships, at our faith, we experienced failure, and Christ's response was to die for us so that we can experience grace. And today at first service, we had the the privilege of baptizing our second person this year already, one of our team members back in the kids' room. She was with us. It It was a great experience. And it was her public declaration of faith in Jesus, the public acceptance of choosing to live by God's grace instead of the world's ungrace. And some of you out there may struggle with failure and shame for the rest of your life because your identity is rooted in the wrong place. In this world, what your family tells you, what social media tells you, and the mistakes that you have made. And if that's you and you're sitting here, first of all, we want you to know that we are glad that you are here. You don't have to live that way because you don't have to live the lie where you are defined by your failures. Your identity doesn't have to be rooted in this world, but it can be rooted in Jesus. Instead, the same Jesus that sat down with Peter and asked him, do you love me? The same Jesus who conquered death and overcame the world wants to show you that you can have grace in your life as well. So in first service, while we celebrated with Randy, if that is something that you want in your life as well, check the baptism box on your connection card. We'll follow up with you this week. We'll call you and we'll begin to have the conversation of what does it look like for you to follow Jesus, to choose grace over shame, to choose grace over unshame. To close out today, I want to go back to the question that kicked off this whole entire series. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? What would you do this year if you knew that when you failed, your failure wouldn't define you? What would you do if you knew that when you failed, God would still love you? What next step would you take this year if you knew that when you failed, grace would be there to pick you up? you finally schedule that appointment with a counselor and begin the healing process. Put yourself out there and be vulnerable with your friends so that you can finally have real life-giving relationships. Would you leave that dating relationship that has you stuck and has you stuck where you are because you know you've compromised with God and there is better out there for you? Would you acknowledge that you have an addiction and begin the process of recovery? Would you actually make your faith a priority? What would you do, and maybe better yet, what are you going to do this year? What are you going to write down on our chalkboard in the parking lot as you leave today? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for the example of Peter one of Jesus' best friends, a guy that walked with him throughout life, but a guy that made mistakes, a guy that I can identify with, and I say, yeah, I see myself in him. And if we see what Jesus wants for Peter, and then we see that Jesus wants that for me as well, that gives me hope. That's encouraging. That gives me courage to want to chase after you. So God, whatever it is, whatever you have put before us on our mind, help us to chase those big, scary dreams this year, to take that next step, to walk in faith for the first time or the 50th time. 
give us the courage to live that out. It's in your son's name. Amen.